Section 8 of Man on the Meteor by Ray Cummings. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Krista Zaleski. Part 8. The Magogs were striking. The war had begun. I do not like to remember in detail the scene around the king's palace which followed this sinister news. The city, so gay, so carefree a few hours before, was a turmoil of confusion, of terror, almost of panic. To the palace the people crowded. The cube of water was jammed with a frightened, expectant throng, a throng that looked to its ruler for protection, for advice, for commands. There are those on your earth who scoff at government. Let them be menaced by an outside enemy. Let that enemy threaten the very doors of their homes, threaten their women. Ah, then those who scoff at their government will scoff no longer. Like frightened children, they will run to their lawful ruler for protection. The throng before the palace clamored for the king to tell them what to do. With my Nona and boy beside me, I was inside the building, in a room with the king and queen, Atar and Cain. I shall never forget that scene. To make you appreciate it, I shall have to remind you that never before in the reign of this king had an enemy menaced his domains. And this Maronite civilization, as I now realize it to have been, was very primitive. In a word, our king at this crisis was flurried. His preparations for war were in truth but vague and impractical. The Maronoids did not know the meaning of an army. Magogs were coming to kill them. Maronoids must fight in defense. That was the extent of the king's plans. He sat in his carved shell on the throne platform, and we others crowded around him anxiously. Outside the palace, the shouts of the frightened mob floated in to us through the water. The Magogs, said Atar, they are coming through the coral barrier. Our guards there have been defeated, killed most of them, and the rest have fled. Coming here, I asked. Will they come here to Rax, do you think? The king looked at us hopelessly. Here? To Rax? They cannot. I am not ready. We must arm to repulse them. They must not come so soon. Before this time of sleep is over, they will be here, Cain declared gloomily. Two of the king's counselors appeared swimming into the room. Old men, terrified nearly out of their wits. They huddled down beside us, and one of them said, at the cavern, my king, they are waiting your orders. The shouts outside grew louder, more insistent. The king! Where is the king? Let him speak to us. Tell us what to do. We are ready to fight. Death to the Magogs. Our king. We want our king. Father, cried Atar, speak to them. Command them. Now, or panic will come and we are lost. The king rose to his feet uncertainly. Yes, speak to them. Of course I will. A woman swam hurriedly into the apartment, a serving woman to the queen. My king, the people are arriving from the forests and the mud banks. They are crowding into racks. They do not know where to go or what to do. The rural population, coming into the city for protection. I will speak to them, the king repeated. He said it numbly, as in a daze. I must tell them something. Atar, my son, we must plan something, you and I. But there is no time. The Magogs are coming so soon. It was then that my Nona whispered to me, vehemently with her soft arms entwined about my neck, inspiring words, my blood raced hot through my veins. I? You, she insisted, you, Nemo. 
where was I born? I do not know. But I must have come from some great civilization. Latent within me were powers I little realized. And in that instant of crises, with the inspiration of Nona's words, the blood of my ancestors dominated me. I flung myself up into the water and waved my arms at the astonished king. A leader, I cried. We Marinoids need a man who will lead us to victory. It is I, Nemo, who will command. Og is coming. I will oppose him. I, the stranger, with my woman Nona. I caught Atar's excited gaze. I added, with you, Atar, to help me. We will win. The king was more confused than ever, but I saw that he was pleased, relieved. And my Nona's eyes were upon me. Pride, joy, and love for me was in them. Come, I said to the king. I will talk to the people with you beside me, and you will tell them that Nemo, the stranger within their gates, is in command. Chapter 2. Nemo Becomes a Leader We went to a little balcony outside the throne room window. The crowd fell silent when it saw us. At the railing we stood beside each other with Nona, Atar, and the rest crowding the doorway behind us. The king, with the responsibility of leadership removed from him so unexpectedly, had recovered his poise. He put one of his arms about my shoulder, as smilingly he showed me to the people. It was a throng so dense that all I could see was a mass of faces and bodies. Silence, then a wavering cheer. The king extended his other arms, and he told the hushed people that I was to be their leader. They cheered, but there was an ominous undercurrent of murmuring that went with it. I was thinking swiftly, planning what I would say, what I should tell them to do. And I must admit that in the first moment I was confused myself, but no one should see it. I knew that most of all I must appear confident and talk to them inspiringly, perhaps bombastically. My beloved people, the great god of the Marinoids sent me to you, I began, to lead you against this traitor Og. Glorious times are ahead of us, my people. Victory! But the murmur of dissent was growing. A voice shouted a raucous jibe. Wait! Listen to me, all of you! This Og, whom once I fought before you all. It was an unfortunate illusion. I had lost that combat with Og. Silence! I shouted over the noise. Into the water of wild things I have just been, and from this self-same Og recovered my woman Nona. But the mingled cheers and jibes halted me. I could feel that the king's arm around me was trembling. He whispered to me quaveringly, Go on, Nemo, tell them. But my Nona suddenly sprang forward up to the parapet. Women of the Marinoids, her voice to the women of the crowd rang out clear and silenced the confusion. Women of the Marinoids, this is war. We women, our virtue, our children, our homes are threatened. Do we fight or do we sit by while the men defend us? Women of the Marinoids, answer me. They did answer her. Their shouts of applause came up. Enthusiastic shouts of the women, in which the cheering voices of the men were mingled, and over it all came Nona's cry. I knew you would say that. My wonderful Nona, she was dominating them. Her glorious arms, smooth as pink marble, went out to them appealingly. We are but women, frail of body, but the spirit of battle is strong within us. Our virtue, could we fight for anything more sacred? To our men it is everything. Let us help them preserve it, not with words, with deeds. Then she called upon all the women who were young and strong like herself, bade them come now to the palace rooftop. Come, she cried, 
all you women who would fight for your virtue. Let us show our men what sort of women are theirs. Come now, and Nona, the stranger's woman, will command you in battle. They came. From out of the crowd they swam upward, the fairest, most beautiful of the Maronoid girls, and settled upon the palace roof. Two hundred of them, perhaps. It was inspiring. It could not help but be. And my Nona knew it, and had planned it thus. The men, seeing them gather, cheered loudly, and called upon me to lead them to protect the women. It saved the situation for the king and me. Nona swam upward. "'My man Nemo will command you men,' she shouted, "'and I will lead the women.' She gazed down at me. "'We women will wait for your orders, my Nemo, "'for after all we are but women.' And among the girls she took her place, waiting. I had made my decisions. The crowd now was with me. In a breath I knew the news of my leadership would spread through the city. I spoke. I knew that my voice now carried the real confidence of authority, and the crowd knew it. I commanded that all the older women, old men, and children should go to their homes, bar their doors and windows, and wait. All men, able-bodied, I ordered to the roof of the city, there to wait for their arms and equipment, which very soon would be furnished to them. They were to divide themselves into two groups, older men, whose power of giving the electric shock was waning, and those younger, in whom it was still at its height. As I began giving orders, the things I must do multiplied in my mind. A score of the fastest swimmers in the city, I bade come to me at once in the throne room of the palace. I wished to send them to the entrance of the water of wild things, to bring us news of the enemy's advance, to send them throughout the forests and the mud banks, to order everyone living there to come into racks. There were three other Marinoid cities besides Rax and Ghana, small, unimportant cities. My couriers would order them to prepare, as Rax was preparing, and send their fighting men at once to the roof of Rax. Other things I thought of. Ghana, we must abandon. Its Marinoid population was massacred. The half-breeds held it in full possession. I did not mention this now to the crowd, but I told them that every half-breed encountered in Rax was to be killed. The refugees coming here from the mudbanks, Atar whispered, to remind me. All refugees into Rax I ordered to divide into two groups. The fighting men to come to the roof of the city, the others, women, old men, and children, to seek quarters in the homes of Rax. Any household would take them in. The people were dispersing, following my orders. Nona, with her girls, was waiting on the palace roof. I signed her to swim down to me. Select a girl to command them under you, I said swiftly. And my Nona, you were wonderful. Her caress answered me. Give boy to Kane's woman, Nona, to take home. Kiss him for me, our boy. Even in the haste of that moment, I remember how thankful I was that boy was too young to fight. Yet Nona wished to fight, you exclaim. True, but can you guess how cold my heart was within me at the thought of it? Then, Nona, join me in the throne room. We must go to the cavern. I dispatched my couriers, and those I sent to spy upon the enemy carried with them my unspoken prayer that they would bring back word we had at least a few hours to prepare. A few hours. This Marinoid was a very little nation, as you would reckon it. Yet warfare cannot be planned upon such short notice and in my heart then I cursed the pacifist stupidity that had brought such a tragedy upon us. Chapter 3. To the Arsenal My duties at the palace for the moment were over. With Atar, Cain, and Nona, I hurried to the cavern. Atar led us. None of us others had ever been there. It was not far from Rax, a broad entrance cunningly disguised with removable foliage. A tunnel, short and steeply downward, led us under the sea bottom. 
It was dark. Lights at intervals illumined the water. Dim, wavering lights, lending to everything a ghostly unreality. Several times we were stopped, but at the sight of a tar the guards let us pass. Ahead of us presently we could see more open water, a broad, shallow amphitheatre artificially lighted. Figures were moving about it, busy at various tasks. Human figures, most of them, but not all. Some were dolphins. And then I saw a great cage, within which two or three hundred of the graceful creatures were swimming idly about. With the tar to show us the way, we swam slowly the length and breadth of the cavern. Here, he said, were the weapons being made. I looked them over, a thousand of them possibly, small dagger-like things, swords, others long as a lance, still others very thin, but heavy in front to be thrown through the water like javelins. The sight of the weapons standing in racks inspired me. With them I could equip a thousand fighting men, more perhaps. Further along we came upon a side cave. In it I saw a dozen sleighs to be drawn through the water by dolphins. They were not unlike the king's sleigh, in which I had already ridden upon two memorable occasions, save that these were smaller, to carry one man only, and slimmer, with streamlines so that they might offer a minimum of resistance in passing through the water. I examined them more closely. Each had along its sides banks of lights, small torpedo-shaped pods filled with extraordinarily luminous organisms. The lights were shrouded, but a tar uncovered those of one sleigh. A blinding glare pointing only forward shot like a searchlight beam through the water. Light sleighs to blind the enemy. These light sleighs, Atar explained, were designed to precede an advancing army. They would blind the enemy, throw him into clear light, and in the comparative darkness behind them our marinoid forces could advance. We passed along quickly, for we had little time for these explanations. Atar was giving orders, the workmen were preparing everything for immediate action. There were other sleighs, sleighs of darkness. These were in shape like the others, but larger, for two men. Around them were ink bags. I remembered the squid which had attacked us in the water of wild things. These bags, when squeezed, emitted an inky fluid, a screen of darkness that could be thrown over the scene of battle at any critical moment of disaster or retreat. I was enumerating in my mind the forces at my command. I had men famed for their power of giving the electric shock. I would use them in a separate division, to combat the black fishes of the Magogs. The black fishes! My heart sank as I thought of them. Fearless, suicidal little brutes, whose only instinct was to fight until death. How many of them would Og have to hurl against us? But we had the dolphins. I demanded of Atar what the dolphins were for. There were several hundred of them, and a score or so were all that could be needed to draw the sleighs. Our men will ride them, said Atar. Small, slim, very skillful men will have to be chosen, men without the electric power. It would be useless on a dolphin. We can arm these men with the long, thin spears. They can go swiftly anywhere. Such words on the very eve of battle. How would we have time to select such men, train them? And where were the men? There were no small, slim, skillful men, except among the younger group whose electric power would be more valuable to us. Again had I reckoned without Nona. Her eyes were shining, her beautiful face flushed with excitement. We women will ride your dolphins. Small, slim, skillful, without the electric power. We are the ones you need. It was then I protested. Indeed, I tried my best to get her to stay with Boy at home. I failed, and now I realize that in spite of my fears for her, I was more proud of her than I had ever been before. 
Fighting for the Virtue of the Marinoid Girls, My Nona. Nona Learns to Ride a Dolphin. A single dolphin out of its cage swam past us, sleek, graceful creature longer than my body, its every line denoting speed. Atar called to it. Like a dog, it came and fawned upon us. With her arm about its neck, Nona caressed it. This one will I ride, she exclaimed. Let me try now. Atar, make him let me try. Atar summoned a young marinoid, one who had helped train the dolphins. He showed Nona how to mount it. She had on an outer garment at the moment, and at the lad's direction she discarded it. Then he brought thongs of grass and bound her hair tightly about her head. She was ready. Lying flat on the dolphin's back, her slender body seemed welded to it. A collar was about the dolphin's head, and into it she thrust an arm to hold herself. The young marinoid told her how the creature was guided. A kick of the heel, pressure of an arm against its head, or even a whispering word. She was away, back and forth through the water before us the dolphin sped, and Nona's body flat against it caused hardly a ripple. Then they gave her one of the long lance-like spears. She carried it, held it poised, flashed it above her below, lunging at imaginary enemies as the dolphin darted about under her commands. The grace and skill of it, I was amazed. Woman with such a thing learns faster than man. Soon she was twisting her body down to use the dolphin as a shield, lunging with the lance over its back. Then she dashed over to where we were waiting and slipped to the cave floor, standing there panting and triumphant, a little jockey flushed with victory. You see, my Nemo, we women can do it. We will ride your dolphins. An hour or more had gone by. For another, we talked and planned. Atar, Kane, and I. Nona had taken the dolphins with their four trainers, taken them to the palace roof to organize the girls. Soon our messengers would return from the water of wild things with the news of the enemy's progress. I went up to the palace to join Nona. The men from the cavern under Kane's direction were on the roof of the city distributing weapons to our forces gathered there. I had no sooner reached the palace than one of my couriers came in. Good news, good news indeed, the Magog forces were not coming at once to Rax. Ghana was in the hands of their half-breed allies. It was closer to them than Rax. They were heading for Ghana, occupying it, massing there, and from there doubtless would presently attack us. It was the breathing space we wanted, needed so badly. Now we could organize. Nona, with her dolphin, was with me as the courier poured out his news. Quick-witted, fertile-minded woman. Never will I cease to marvel at her. She whispered to me a plan. Daring, yet almost certain of success. A plan that she and I alone could execute. A plan... But presently you shall hear it in detail, for we lost no time in attempting it. Chapter 4. Nona and Nemo Start on a Mysterious Journey Nona and I started, each on a dolphin, each bearing a short, broad-bladed sword. Only Atar knew where we were going, or what we were about to try and do. Riding the dolphins, we started slowly at first, for I was inexperienced. The creature's sleek body was beneath me, and I clung to it, stretching myself out along its back, my fingers gripping its woven grass collar. Nona rode ahead on a dolphin slightly smaller, but I was soon to learn, equally as fast as my own. Nemo, are you all right? Her sober, earnest little face was turned back toward me. All right, I said. Yes, of course. Would you let a woman know when you were perturbed? Not I. At once Nona increased the pace, and my own mount followed her. We were leaving the city, passing out along one of its horizontal streets. 
It was nearly deserted. The fighters had gone to the city roof. The others were barred in their darkened houses. Occasionally a face would show at a window. A courier came along, returning from one of the other cities. We stopped him. My orders were being obeyed, he reported. The fighters from the other cities were swimming in to join our men on the roof of racks. I sent the courier on to the palace to receive further orders from Attar. We wished to spread the news that the enemy was not attacking at once. And while Nona and I were away on this enterprise, Attar and Kane were there to organize the army. And the girl whom Nona had appointed was to drill the other girls in riding the dolphins. We passed on out of Rax as we left the city heading for our first objective, the entrance to the water of wild things. I caught a glimpse of the roof of Rax. The open spaces up there were thronged with our men. Nona increased our pace, and very soon Rax with his activities was left out of sight in the dimness behind us. The open water was almost deserted. Refugees were straggling in. Occasionally we came upon parties of them, families who had fled from their isolated homes. They all halted and gazed after us curiously as we dashed past them. All right, Nemo? Yes, of course. We went faster. The water pressed against me, roared in my ears, blurred my vision. I clung tighter and bent my head in the crook of my arm. Then, after a time that seemed ages, but was doubtless very brief, we slackened. Nona signaled to me, and I rode my dolphin close alongside hers. See, she whispered, we are here. Ahead of us in the dim water, moving lights showed. We were almost at the entrance to the water of wild things. The last of the Magog forces were coming through. We did not dare go close enough to see much. Moving lights disclosed double lines of swimming figures. They were coming out through the passageway they had cut in the coral, and swimming off toward Ghana. The line of their lights extended out of sight in that direction. We were just in time to see the last of them come through, Og and his black fishes. We assumed it was Og. We had gone closer, but not close enough to distinguish features. A lone male figure carrying a light and surrounded by that swarming pack. The figure closed the passageway gate at this end carefully. Like ourselves, Og wanted no unruly monsters to get through into Marinoid waters. We waited until his single light was well on its way to Ghana. We can follow now, I said. Nona, we will succeed. We can do it, my girl. And it is you who have planned it. She did not answer me. She had already started her dolphin. Like shadows in the gloom, silently, without a ripple of the water as we slipped through it, we followed close after the Magog inviting army. Chapter 5. In the Realm of the Unknown To Ghana. It took us a long while to get there, for the Magog army advanced slowly. Following the lights, we found ourselves descending at once to the sea bottom. These Magogs, lumbering and ungainly, were poor swimmers. The line of them was walking along the bottom. It made my heart leap to realize that. What match would they be for us Marinoids in battle, our men so active in the water, our alert girls on the dolphins? We would cut them to pieces. We would rout. I whispered my thoughts to Nona. Be not too sure, my Nemo, she said soberly. It may be so, but first we must do what we are now planning. We went on through the forest road where the Magogs had trampled aside the tall, tenuous growth of foliage. It was much dimmer in here. Beside us, the trees and ferns spread as dark lacework of green and brown. They met overhead, wavering, tenuous, but impenetrable to our sight. What a spot for ambush! A thousand hiding places all about us. An army could lurk here, in ambush unseen. 
It is very easy to look backwards upon life and say what should have been done. We Marinoids, how stupidly we had done things. Our army, if it had been organized and ready, could have lurked here in this dark forest, leaped upon the Magogs, defeated them at once in one great surprise attack. What, I whispered. Nona, from her dolphin beside mine, had reached out and gripped my arm. I followed her gaze, caught a glimpse of a figure hovering amid the airpods overhead, and just in advance of us. A man coming down now towards us, swimming cautiously. My heart leaped, my grip on my sword tightened. Then I saw it was a marinoid, one of my own couriers stationed here to watch the enemy pass. He joined us. Og, he said, and his black fishes were last to pass. I would have given my own life to the fishes could I have killed him, but it did not seem possible. I sent the courier back to Rax, and we went on as before. Out of the forest now, across an open stretch, with the lights of the Magog still before us. Then, Ghana. There it stood, leaning sidewise in the press of current. Travelling so slowly, we could feel the sweep of the moving water. A gentle current here, but just beyond Ghana, I knew there was an opening in the side wall of rock which bordered in the Marinoid domain. It was a large opening leading diagonally downward, an opening larger than the city itself, and into it the water rushed swiftly. Wait, whispered Nona. We halted our mounts and waited while the last of the occupying Magogs dispersed themselves about the city. From this distance we could see their lights but hear no sounds. Evidences of the recent half-breed massacre of the Marinoid population were about us, broken inert bodies lying here and there on the sea bottom and the smell of blood in the water. I shuddered to remember it. Ghana, bloody from end to end, a city of death now, and these triumphant Magogs occupying it, making it a base from which to attack racks. At last they were all in. Cautiously we advanced further, moving lights on the city's outer surface, a murmur of sounds, nothing more. A few moments and we were under the city, in its cellar, let me say. No one lived down here, sand under our feet, woven vegetation twenty feet overhead, a cellar ceiling which formed the lowest tier of the city. It was black in here, and almost soundless, just the murmur of the city above us. We stood motionless, listening. Were we alone? Dared we light our lights? I knew that if they caught us in here we could not escape, yet we could see nothing without lights. We unshrouded them finally, little pods which threw tiny wavering green beams, with them we poked around cautiously, with our swiftly beating hearts seeming about to smother us. Destroying a city. Ghana was a small city, four thick stalks of vegetation, each about twice the thickness of my body, formed its main stems. I stood beside one of them, dug my sword into it. Within five minutes I had hacked through the stem. Nona held the light. Quietly, she whispered, if they should hear us. The stalk was severed. A tremor seemed to run over the upper part, and it moved slightly sideways. Trembling ourselves, we attacked another, severed it, then the third. The city over us was shifting, toppling. The fourth stalk was twisted and bent by the strain. I severed it with a few blows. Swim, Nona, quickly! The ceiling overhead was lifting, shifting. Smaller stalks and vines which had taken root in the sand were tearing away. Above us came a cry, shouts, confusion. We swam to extricate ourselves. Tearing vines seemed to leap at us, but we avoided them. Back to our dolphins. They were waiting. We mounted them, 
turned to look at the city. It was turning over in the water and floating away. Slowly, then faster, down toward that black opening into which the current would sweep it. The city of death. But every living thing in it was pouring out. Lights, dark blobs of figures, shouts, commands. The Magogs were escaping, in a turmoil, and they would lose whatever apparatus they had for war. But they were escaping nevertheless. We had hoped the catastrophe would come more quickly, but it did not. The city toppled slowly over, while these terrified figures leapt from it. Slowly it floated away, then plunged into the torrent. It was gone with its murdered Maranoid dead. But on the sand and in the water ahead of us, the Magogs and the half-breeds remained. Some had gone to their death, no doubt. The others... They will not wait to attack us now, Nona whispered suddenly. We have crippled them, but... We must get back, I exclaimed. It is we who must attack at once. Finish them up, now, before they can recover. Chapter 6 In racks we found Tatar with his work well done. We Marinoids were ready, and within an hour, or very little more, we set forth to meet the advancing Magogs. The battle? Patience. In good time you shall hear. End of Part 8